Petersfield's Shine Radio. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of Dogs With Jobs. It's great to have you with me. I'm Kate Fairweather and today I have a trio of extremely specialised, very talented detection dogs working in a very niche area commercially. This is conservation work, detection work, but actually it's also in the commercial property sector because what they are trained to search for Japanese knotweed is the big bogeyman of the British property industry. Japanese knotweed is highly invasive. It's really difficult to eradicate. And Kat Yanisha, who is my uh, interviewee today, has actually trained as a surveyor in knotweed because it's that big of a thing in the UK. And she talks incredibly interestingly about where it comes from, why it's a problem, how the dogs are trained to find it, and much more in this interview. Uh, Her mother was in human resources, and there is something of the HR professional in how she talks about her dogs, managing them, testing them, making sure that they're in peak condition all the time at the very top of their game. But some of this she does in a really fun way. Here she is, making sure that there's a training opportunity everywhere. So for training, for that purpose, I would put my high-vis on and like an idiot walk around in the field with a high-vis <laughs> on or hard hat so it, so they don't start thinking, well, you only put it on when we're out working. So, you know, the training sessions are as similar to work as possible. So one of the practicing sessions a year ago I was doing with, with Leafia, the youngest one, was where the bin men were taking the bins. So the lights, the sounds, and she was searching, which would be similar to what happens on a construction site. Right. I just love the way that the bin men coming down your road is actually a training opportunity to Cat. She's so on the ball and she talks really interestingly about the different disciplines in scent detection and about her research and uh, is, is brings a lot of precision to it, as well as having the most fantastic relationship with her dogs, which is really lovely to see, as it so often is with working dogs. So enjoy if you are enjoying the series please do give us a rating or a ranking with apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts it all helps and i'm always looking for interviewees so if you know someone who would be interesting and you think they might be up for coming on the show please get in touch i'll put details of how to in the show notes and on the website so here we go kat yanisha on japanese knotweed we have phoenix who is a dutch shepherd um, I got him in Holland. We have Nika, who is an English Springer Spaniel, and Nettle, uh, who is a black working cocker Spaniel, and Liefje, who is a dog in training, who is also a Dutch Shepherd. Okay, tell me about their names. So, uh, well, so Phoenix uh, is called like that because um, I was working in South Africa nine years ago, uh, doing like a train at um, Labrador to search for explosives on people in, in the airports. Okay. And it was sold to people in South Africa who worked at the airport. And I was there and I met some really nice Dutch shepherds. And it was a quite challenging training experience. It, it, it worked out really well, but it wasn't the easiest experience. And uh, the daughter of a dog handler that had the lab said that if I got a Dutch shepherd, I could call it, should call it Phoenix. 
from the whole, you know, kind of coming back from the ashes of the... Oh, okay. So, so that's why he was called Phoenix. Uh, and then we have Nika, who is called from... Actually, her name comes from Japanese knotweed. So it's from the Latin name of Japanese knotweed. Which is Japonica. That's, or... yeah, the second part of the name is Japonica, oh. which will be the, the last. And I got her specifically for Japanese knotweed. And a nettle is called nettle because um, knotweed often grows with nettle. So not you can find nettles very often growing at the same locations as Japanese knotweed. And uh, she was also a little bit spicy as a puppy. So, it fi- <laughs> yeah, it fits well with her personality. Still does. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So you've mentioned what we're doing, which is knotweed. Mm-hmm. Now, knotweed is it, it kind of it's like a death knell to a British property owner. Mm-hmm. We all know about knotweed here. But um, why is knotweed a problem? Tell us about knotweed. Um, it is very invasive and it spreads quite quickly. Um it, because it comes from Japan, where it grows on volcanoes originally, so it uh, it can survive very, very difficult conditions. Um, so obviously, the, in the UK, we don't have volcanoes, and uh, <laughs> it's it just it doesn't really have a natural, well, any enemies if that makes sense. So it just keeps spreads, Got it. and it can suppress our um, native plants, uh, and it can be quite bad and damaging for building structures. Um, it doesn't. So there is this misconception that not we can break through for example uh, concrete it cannot actually that's exactly break. what i was going to ask it you. cannot no no so there's been research done on that it cannot break through concrete but if there is a crack in the structure in the building structure it can then when because when it's when it, when it's growing um it has very quite small um well what, what do you call it like the growth is quite small and then it expands and becomes oh. like cane like okay with time so that can that can break the building structure, but there has to be a crack in the first place. Right. And how tall does it grow? Because oh, it's, it can be quite. Uh, I mean, it's. I don't know if there's actual like how but easily about two meters tall. It's, okay. it's quite in summer. Uh, in summer, it can get very tall, and it's a pretty beautiful plant. I would say, you know, even though it's it's well, it's not great for us, but and that's how it ended up in UK. It was brought here. And actually, even I think war, uh, won a gardening award or something like that, and then escaped to the wild. It's very difficult to kill it, and it can it goes dormant uh, during winter months, uh, but it also can just go dormant for years. So it's um, 20 plus years, it can just be under the ground and wait for better conditions and start mm-hmm. growing. So you might, for example, you might buy a house with and have a garden there that might have some knotweed in it and no one knows about it, and start gar- then you start gardening suddenly and have knotweed growing so because you've disturbed it yes, let in a bit of light a, better, a bit of, yeah, create yeah. a better situation for it to grow wow so your dogs you've trained just on japanese knotweed yes they're searching for japanese knotweed specifically yes yeah. and how busy are you uh, and what are you doing day to day when you because you're not doing this from home are you <laughs> no no we travel a lot and uh, it is very it's very difficult to say what we do day to day because every week is different so it's it's kind of hard to say what will be a standard week but w- i am away from home uh, on a weekly basis pretty much uh, and sometimes it can be one day and sometimes it can be a few days depending on how far we because we're traveling everywhere it can be anything from small gardens uh, that will take us five minutes to search in centre London, central London, uh, and then takes us five hours to get there because of traffic, <laughs> um, or big jobs like M25 recently, or or construction sites. So, so there's a big variation in what what we're doing. So, what does that mean in terms of what the dogs have to uh, cope with in their working mm. lives? Uh, so they they have to cope with loads of travel, uh, a lot of change. So when we if we travel away and we're away for a night. 
uh, will be staying in different kind of accommodation, so they have to get used to well, they're, they're used to that. That's a big thing for a dog, isn't um, it? I think it depends on the personality. Mm. So I think if you had a if for for their for them it doesn't matter because they um, they're stable they they go they're quite kind of up for anything mm-hmm. um, but if you had a dog that was anxious or worried about certain things they would struggle and they would stress yeah. so it's very important to get the right type of a dog mm-hmm. for the job so they can deal with the certain situations and the same on the jobs because it's not just the traveling but uh, certain jobs will require um, a, well. Certain jobs will have more difficult conditions than others, and it can be there will be things that will be completely unpredictable. So, for example, one of the London jobs we had, um, I got to it was an apartment with tiny garden, but the apartment had very steep metal stairs okay. to get to the garden. So we had so the dogs had to walk. I could carry the spaniels down, but the shepherds had to walk, um, and then you had uh, you could see through the stairs. Right. So it was one of those see-through metal stairs so if the dogs were not comfortable with that then we potentially would have a problem or yeah. on one jobs with uh, phoenix who is a very large dog uh, we were searching in an area that was also a badger's nest right and there was no gate but no one thought about it ahead of time so i got there they showed me where we're searching i said well how do we get through he said oh just over the fence but the fence was too high for the dogs to jump yeah so we had to have two uh workers who worked there on the site carry phoenix over the fence between okay. each other. So again, for him... So he also needed to be comfortable being oh God, picked yes. up by a stranger, yes. Yes. probably in high-vis, I'm guessing. Yes, high-vis in hard hat. <laughs> hard hat, sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So they need to be very steady. They do, yes, they do. And, and for example, when we were working on M25 uh, recently, last, it was uh, November, um, there were also, it was also quite difficult in terms of conditions because A, we're close to the active highway, Mm-hmm. Because so obviously we have to wear high vis and uh, the dogs have to be on the lead, which is fine. They're used to. They mostly work off lead, mm-hmm. but they know they they know how to work on lead as well for those situations. Do they have to wear any particular kit? There isn't. No, they they do wear high vis, so mm-hmm. they will have a high vis either a vest or a harness. Mm-hmm. They also have boots. Uh, for those kind of shoes, so we have what kind boots. of boots? Well, the special it's called a Ruka. It's a is a brand. I think it's Finnish potentially, okay. and they have special boots for dogs. Those are the ones I found were best in terms of grip, especially for the spaniels because they move really fast. So those are the only ones who don't fly off them. Oh wow! And then uh, goggles. So spaniels will wear goggles, and um, especially if we're searching like where there's quite dense vegetation, brambles. Uh, because they just dive head in <laughs> uh, and and otherwise could injure themselves. So okay, yeah. and also not bothered by traffic because mm-hmm. uh, or or you know quite heavy machinery because when we're on sites, uh, the work on the site does not have to stop when we're there. So obviously yeah. there was like a safety. They see us, we'll stop if there is someone coming. So all of that health and safety is put mm-hmm. in place. But the dogs don't mind if someone would be a moving big I don't know a digger or something okay. like that or people walking around in high vis. We've had to be transported on site, for example, in a small van because I couldn't get my car on so we had to I had to fit them in the front of the uh, you know of the van so so yes yeah, so there's a lot going on around the, so even before we get to searching there's a lot going on that they have to be used to yes and feel comfortable with and but yes. I think it all comes to well training is because very because for a yeah. lot of pet dogs yeah you'd be thinking about just generally their well-being but yes. you're not just thinking about their well-being they've got to do the job when they get yes, there yes but they do need to feel well enough to be able to do the job because if they yeah. were too stressed obviously the, the job will be impacted yeah but that's why I think that it really comes down to... So training is one thing, but it does come down to having a right dog. Because a lot of right. dogs will not be happy doing that. No. So you need a dog that will not 
stress and I will be happy going out on those kind of adventures. So I want to know how you do that. And part of that is choosing them Mm -hmm. isn't it because i think you said you like working with puppies rather because so many conservation Mm. dogs and other detection dogs that i've spoken Mm. to have actually been rescued Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they've just not been working out as pets yes and then they get a job and everything goes well Mm -hmm. you like to start earlier why is that uh, I've been working with puppies for quite a long time because I used to work in Holland with a company called Send Imprint for Dogs. And that's what they spe- do specifically. They get puppies at like eight weeks old and train them up to be detection dogs. So there's a lot of puppy selection. And I would say now it's more of like an instinct because I would choose all my... I've chosen all my puppies, recent puppies, within a minute of meeting them. So straight... I don't do any tests. I meet them and I'm like, this is the one I want. Why is that? Because we'll come on to, yeah. in a few minutes, the very rigorous and structured mm-hmm. approach that you're taking yes, yeah. to working them. And yet when you're picking them, mm. you're going on instinct, are you? Well, I think instinct always comes to experience. So with the ones I've chosen as puppies, for example, let's say the Spaniels, the most recent, uh, I chose Nika because I had a choice uh, of two litters of Spaniels at the same time. She was the one who approached me first mm-hmm. and she was the one who stayed with me. So it was more social and she was um, playful. She was she was engaging with me. She was playing. Mm-hmm. And so that was that's what I liked. I liked the fact that she was already she was only four weeks old when I met her. I liked the fact that she was already interested in playing with toys. Mm-hmm. And that she was very social. So for me, that's probably... I really go for social dogs. People tend to go for detection for independent dogs. I don't because if I'm getting a dog of a breed, like a Spaniel, for example, they're going to be independent enough while we're out mm. and about. So I like the... So I, and Nika wasn't very, very dependent when she was a puppy. She was, she was horrible in terms of... <laughs> I, I put a lot of work in her not, you know, going too much into environment. Um, and then with Neto, I met her about five weeks old and I, I wasn't specifically looking for puppy at that uh, that point and uh, well kind of was kind of wasn't <laughs> but uh, I met her at five weeks old and I sat with all the puppies and uh, I was just having a look and she's the one who again was most social and she tried to get a shoelace off my shoe for full minutes so for full minutes she's not given up at five weeks old yes and for me was I like I like that perseverance and Nika was similar in that way as well that she also wanted to get something mm. so I like the perseverance of wanting to, if you want something you try you, you're gonna do everything you can to get it and that for me is a good sign and when you mention the social side mm. being important at that point when they're just weeks old, mm. is that because of what we've been talking about, the way you work and the fact they, that, that your dogs have to cope with such a huge variety mm. of people and changes? No, it's more because at that age, they shouldn't have any fear either way. So their brain is not switching on to fear. So you wouldn't see necessary if there would be. You can in some cases, but you could equally still have some fear responses to humans coming in later. Yeah. Um, and... It's more that I like dogs to work closely with me. Yeah. So I like needy dogs. So it's, <laughs> it works well with me because when we go everywhere together, it, it just, yeah, it just You're works. You're bonding into a little team. Yes. Should also say at this point, you've been working with dogs for a very long time, haven't you? Yes, I have. And yes. you're a behavioralist originally. It, well, I originally worked with, I thought that's why I wanted to do originally work with behavior and I did uh, anim, applied animal behavior in the uni and, and psychology. But uh, when I found it very emotionally draining to work with for example rescue dogs i used to work in the rescue uh because a lot of times you cannot really help and not necessarily because it's not possible to help but it's you know the other factors or too Um, deeply embedded problems yes or or, but a lot of yes so it's it's not the easiest one and i found so much more um 
reinforcement for myself working with working dogs. It was about nine, ten years ago I started working with, in Holland with that company. Mm. And, and that's just something that I really, really like the most and teaching dogs to search for things. Just find really fun. And now, having seen you with them, <laughs> you are like a little gang. We went for a bit of a walk and they had no interest in me yep. <laughs> whatsoever. They weren't bothered mm -hmm. in the least, mm -hmm. but they had no particular interest either. And they're obviously, you, you can tell that you're a little gang and you spend a lot of time together. Very, very strong connections. Mm -hmm. Is that partly because of the lifestyle and, and how do you promote that? It, yes, I would say it's definitely because of lifestyle. It also makes our life easier when we travel because because the fact that they st we stay always so close together, mm. wherever we go, they can be off lead in most places. You know, we don't have I don't have to worry about finding a special, I don't know, fenced field or something. Mm. We can easily go for a nice walk and, and not worry about anything around us. And uh, so that makes, yeah, that makes our life easier. I do think relationship is extremely important especially if you ask them to work sometimes really hard for you you know because i mean obviously we go out there and sometimes it's difficult situations or they might have an injury or something right. like so it's i think the relationship is a very important part of that i do promote them being quite close especially with the spaniels who are of the hunting breed the shepherds tend to naturally be quite close with us either way um but with all my dogs i for example don't don't allow them to just go out in an environment and, you know, hunt for animal sense or yeah. get, you know, they, they would never have expectation to go out. And if they see a dog, like that's what happened when we were walking, didn't yeah. it? There was some lady walking with her dogs and might haven't even noticed them mm -hmm. because, again, they don't go out having expectation to go out and interact with members of the public or with, um, right. with other dogs or whatever. But equally, um, if we're on the job... Every time we're on the job, uh, all the surveyors want to play with them. So after they finish working... <laughs> oh, I was going to ask you about wildlife distractions. Oh. <laughs> I didn't think about the human distractions. Oh, no. But so they... they they've, well, it's, this works for us because before they start working, they're all about work. So they will work. But after they got their toy and they finished their shift, you could mm -hmm. say, they will play with people. And that works both ways because that means that the person gets their yeah. side of it. So, so, yes, everyone wants to, especially with Phoenix, the, the biggest one, everyone wants to play tug with him. and um, and But the Spaniels as well. So, no, so they are very social when they're not working. Right. You were talking about earlier, it was keeping them at tip top mm -hmm. kind of form for working very effectively. And a big part of that is how they're feeling mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how comfortable they're feeling as well as the physical side. So from the distraction perspective, I created an expectation with them since they're very young that wherever we go, we will potentially work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, as soon as we get out of the car, we're going to, and we'll start with just playing, mm -hmm. in, engaging together. So play, engage, do some work. So for example, if I will go and socialize them in brackets, mm -hmm. um, so let's say I'll go to like a parking somewhere in like, I don't know, Tesco or something like that. Yeah. And we'll go out and we'll play together. We won't. We will not be walking around, and then meeting people or you know interacting with the general public. We go out in a public place, and we interact me and them together. Right. And then we then translate that into me putting something out for them to find, uh, like their toy, for example, or playing with them or training. So they have expectation first that wherever they go, we're doing something together. We're working together. You know what that's making me think of? Mm -hmm. It's like. Anyone who has a little baby, mm -hmm. experience of babies, mm -hmm. it's all about cues. Yes. And if you do the same thing every night, mm -hmm. you read your story, you have your bath, you have your mm -hmm. milk, you go to bed, then those series of cues mm -hmm. give comfort to a small 
yes, maybe, yes. in that case. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like wherever you're going, mm-hmm. you might be going somewhere very different. You've got in the same car, yeah. you've got out, you've had the same approach mm-hmm. to engaging with them, playing. Mm-hmm. What happens then? Uh, well, then you create that expectation, for, yeah. uh, exactly, that cue for them. And also, you also, for work, I would put a harness on them. So the, and I would be wearing... Got so, so for training, for that purpose, I would then, when I'm training the, the, the new dogs to work, I would put my high-vis on and like an idiot walk around in the field with a high-vis <laughs> on or hard hat. So, it, so they don't start thinking, well, you only put it on when we're out working. So, you know, the training sessions are as similar to work as possible. Right. That so then it's not as, and we will practice so one of the practicing sessions a year ago I was doing with with Leafia, the youngest one was where the bin men were taking the bins so the lights the sounds and she was searching which would be similar to what happens on a construction site right. so you try to make it as similar as possible to work clever and how about the physical side uh, they do see physio uh, about oh, wow, every really? seven weeks yes they they okay. are um, what, all the time? So you would do that every seven or so weeks through the Phoenix year? Phoenix does, because he's eight, okay. So and he's very big. So because of, uh, well, because of the fact that he is of his age mm-hmm. and and the fact that he's very accident-prone because he's just really <laughs> excitable and would smash into things. Uh, but no, so yeah, so he sees physio regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other ones see them. Um, Leafia used to see the physio as regular as well because I rescued her and she was really malnourished. And behind on her development, physical development. Okay. So she saw saw them to just make sure that she's, you know, we're doing the right thing with building muscle and everything. And the spaniels see uh, her a little bit less often, uh, but it's it's pretty regular, just to make sure that they don't have injuries, that everything is fine, you know, because it can sneak mm. up on you if, you know, if there was injury and maybe they're putting more weight on one side. And I think that the better health they have, the longer they will be able to work and longer they will feel physically, well, good and healthy. So. Yes. What about on the mental side? How do you note their stress levels? How do you monitor that? Obviously, if you know dogs, you mm. will see whether there's everything is fine with them. No, and there's a lot of times, you know, it happens that if you speak to someone who lives really close with their dogs, they know something is wrong, even though yeah. initially you cannot put finger on it. You just know, uh, probably from observation. Um, I would, but from kind of like practical um, elements of that, I would look whether. Are they, are they resting enough? Because obviously they will need enough sleep. Are they a little bit more antsy? So, you know, is there, are there any reasons that will make me think that, oh, maybe they are a little bit stressed? Yeah. Um, but I would say overall they're quite robust in that way. You know, they don't, they're not very stressed. Nika is a very, the Springer Spine, she's a very weird dog overall. <laughs> um, she has her quirks. Um, but but in general, I feel like they're quite, quite good in those situations. I'm guessing, though, mm. they're living a very stimulating and satisfactory yes. life, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, so they sleep most of the time other than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, they do... Yes, because I think because we, you know, if you look, for example, problems people have with spaniels yeah. or working breeds in general, it's because the dogs don't have their needs met. Mm. So because my dogs spend a lot of time training or searching or working, when they're home or we have a day off, there will be most of them they will sleep mm. and just relax. Same when we get to hotels, you know, as soon as we pretty much get to the hotel, get settled, they go to sleep. Mm. They just chill. So it's it's a quite, um, they're, they're quite easy going, to be honest. But they wouldn't be if they didn't get to work. Yeah. So I can I can definitely tell that if you know if, if there is for example I'm really busy with something else or if I'm unwell or something like that, with a few days in I can tell that they need a little bit of uh, work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To be satisfied. I, I was really interested in your thoughts on how you test your dogs mm-hmm. and you know how far you trust the training because. Mm. 
you're doing the training. They know how to indicate. You can't always be sure if you're doing a survey mm-hmm. and... You know, but in fact, that's probably something to explain, mm-hmm. isn't it? Because you do surveys to see if there is any Japanese mm-hmm. knotweed. You might do a survey after treatment of land to see if there's any residual Japanese knotweed. So, in that case, if your dogs are indicating and you're marking on your GPS mm-hmm. or whatever, you're not able to tell if they're right or not, are mm-hmm. you? So, how do you deal with rewarding? So if, yeah, so they're used to, in training, uh, I get them used to not always being rewarded. So, um, because, in, yeah, you're right. So if we're on a survey and they've indicated in a place, but I have no evidence <coughs> there's not wheat there, yeah. I will not reward them. And if they were not used to that, that potentially could knock their confidence. Mm. But because it's something they experience in training, you would ideally want them to be rewarded 75% of time. Uh, that's what research shows, shows us works yeah. best. Um, then it's fine for them, and it can even make them more motivated because they understand that okay, that's you know you don't have to get that reward every yeah. time. Um, and, and what are you rewarding them with? Their toy. Okay. Most of so yes, yeah, so it will be the toy. Um, Phoenix sometimes can get food mm-hmm. uh, for just searching well. Uh, Spaniels will not accept anything but the toy, so, <laughs> <laughs> so they get a favorite uh, Kong, okay. the red Kong. But how do you manage that? So if you're saying you aim roughly Mm. for 25% not rewarding, 75% rewarding, how do you time that or mix it up? Or do you know, do you do you reward them every every fourth go? Or how does it go? Reliable. So you would have to do kind of a random uh, you would have to How do you randomize it? Well you you can use a a random number generator. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, literally you can use a random number generator because humans are we are very much biased to go towards going towards um, you know our own predispositions of okay every fourth time same mm. if we can, if we try to work on duration you know we tend to it's probably oh, our way of being efficient isn't it yes of because course because if yes, you do every cut. fourth go yeah. then that's an efficient shortcut in mm-hmm. many many fields yeah. but it's too predictable for your dogs because they're yes. studying you yeah so it cannot be right so it cannot be reliable right like it's well as it can mm. be pre- sorry it cannot be predictable for the dog yeah. because you then you it's it's um, the, the dog can learn the pattern right every fourth mm. so that's why yeah that's why you need to make sure so you have to record that in your training data uh, to make sure when that comes and also it's about introducing at the right point because you wouldn't introduce it with a very young dog that's not experience it's the, the right time of the training as well right so you'd start off reliably rewarding perhaps yes. you'd get a bit more random as you go in and as the dog's building the maturity yes, and yes, experience you kind of build it, yes exactly you build it up into the whole into the whole process plus also i will reward them for searching well even if they don't find anything but that also is incorporated in training yeah. so you would call it so-called like a blank search which mm. means there's nothing to find so you set up set up in your training and if the dog searched well you can still reward them so they know explain you know, it's not... what a good search looks like then well, it would depend on the discipline. Okay. So for, for what the, we are The doing, discipline within scent detection. Yes, yes, yeah. discipline within scent detection. So you will have different search patterns depending on what the dog is searching for and kind of how intense you need them sniffing depending, again, on the what the substance is. So for bed bugs, you need very intense sniffing because the scent of the bed bug is very, very small. Right. Um, and the dog has to distinguish between live bed bug and dead bed bug because they're not supposed to indicate on dead bed bugs. Right. So it's a very tricky one. If they're searching for something that's very big scent pool, mm. like if you, it's not a specific scent detection, but uh, let's say spaniel searching for a bird that was shot. Yeah. 
a huge sand pool because it was it's you know it's an animal that was just shot so all the yeah. stress it's hot in you've a got cold the stress you've got the blood you've got all of that yes so you got can it. so if you watch the spaniels on a shoot they can they will have a nice pattern but they can run quite fast with their mouth open yes for knotweed that would be too fast mm. they need to slow down so i spend a lot of time with spaniels and yeah i need them more systematic and slower so for what we're doing we need the dogs to put their nose down mm-hmm. and really sniff and not run too much that how near mm. to a knotweed rhizome mm. or a knotweed plant does do your dogs need to be in order to detect it well we don't have data for that so oh, I can okay. t- so so the, well I could tell you that we for example had a cases where knotweed has been inactive for years mm. and the dogs has, have indicated and then the the digger came in days later mm. and took it out but we don't have kind of a scientific evidence of because we've not tested that yeah. so we have like a you know um evidence of this working on a job but not with specifically, you know, written down how how far they had to be. And also the wind, there's so many variants that mm. would, you know, make a difference in that. Of like the yes. wind, the, the time of the year as well. Yes. Because of the, how the knotweed is behaving. And different sights, different wind patterns, soil, different, yes. Temperature. Yeah. So how are the dogs feeling? Yeah, hopefully not that one. <laughs> it should be right. But yes, no, exactly. It's Yeah, so there's a lot of things that will come into play with, with searching outside. When you're training... Do you always know where the scent is? And if so, is there a problem with that? No, no, you definitely cannot know where it is at all times because if you do, the dogs will learn to read you. For any discipline with scent detection, it's extremely important to train uh, to do blind and double blind searches. Explain what those are. So uh, a single blind would be if, for example, we meet here and mm-hmm. I will ask you, oh, could you put something out for me so the dogs can search for it? But I would, I didn't see where it is. Yeah. But you have. Yeah. And if you're present, you could still argue that it's blind to me mm-hmm. and to the dog, but you know where it is, so the dogs could read your behavior still. Is that likely? Yes, it's possible. It's yeah. possible. So you, yeah. so it's important to because also you would be. You could be biased without even necessarily knowing you're biased. So your behavior would... So let's say you put it by the tree. You could be slowing down when they were close to the tree. You know, so you could be... So yes. to make it the best in this case, so that would be a double blind, I would tell you, okay, can you put something for me here in this parking? I'm going to go have a coffee. I'm going to come back. You're going to have a coffee. Yeah. You And then I'll come back and tell you what we found. So there's okay. no one present Got it. who knows where... It was. And in this way, you cannot argue that the dog was reading my body language. But what they could be reading is your tracks. So the important thing is if you you got out of the car and you put uh, something by the tree Mm. and only walked back to the car, Mm. a lot of dogs would go and just follow your scent. Okay. So you have to walk all over the parking and touch a lot of other, there's a lot of uh, That is details. like scent games in the yes. garden. Anyone yeah. who plays scent games, my beagle, I would always throw the clam toy yes, yeah. with the treat in it so that I wasn't actually yes, taking it yep. and then go for an unnecessary little turnaround. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. I'm guessing also, if you know as a handler mm. that there are three things mm-hmm. to find yes is that gonna could the dogs pick that up from you that you might relax in some way once they found number three of course ideally if you knew there were three and a dog found mm. third one ideally you will go and be astral and search everywhere where you haven't searched yet yeah. pretending as if there is more but a lot of people will be oh yeah i found them all let's just go home kind of <laughs> we shouldn't <laughs> yeah, be doing no that. it's it's, it's all, absolutely it's logical isn't it yeah. it's the conservation of energy yeah, and it's yeah. being efficient yeah. and 
we all seek patterns. And it's very, because I also teach people to do scent detection. And what I found is really human and very typical for people to do is if they know where something is mm. if the dog is showing interest so sniffing a little bit longer somewhere where there is nothing they try to move the dog on yeah. and then when the dog is trying to move on for the place where there is something where the dog is not picking it up they will try to spend longer time there and fascinating so the investment of the handler in the dog mm. is creating a bias it can yes which the dog can read it can so what for example which is on the one hand helping it find that object but on the other hand I'm guessing possibly undermining its confidence yes, in finding a Yes, it's like alone. kind of cheating in a way, yeah. not consciously necessary, no. but it's you making it easier. So what I tend to do when I train my own dogs, for example, when they uh, spend some time searching somewhere and like spending a long time being interested, mm. I will actually lean over them, I would look, I would spend, I would not move. So I'm situ- creating a situation where I'm almost putting a bit of pressure on them. Mm. So they would could think potentially, oh, maybe there is something she's showing interest in places there's nothing there. Yeah. So they learn it doesn't matter what my behavior is. Yes. So they don't rely on... The intelligent discounting mm. of you. Yes, because this will happen on sites as well. Because a lot of times mm. I will have to see, you know, I will get quite close and see what's going on. But if they thought, oh, every time she does it, that means there's something for us to find, mm. you could bias them towards that. So, in effect, you're trying to randomise your behaviour yes. every bit as much as your rewards, yes. every bit as yes. much as anything. Yes. Keep it, uh, yeah, you keep it change random. it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the things that I found very interesting mm-hmm. in talking to you as an interviewee is that, on the one hand, you've got this whole loving team thing Mm -hmm. going on with your dogs and it's so obvious how close you all are but on the other hand you are making very strenuous efforts to eliminate bias Mm -hmm. and go on data and figures Mm -hmm. where you have them tell tell us about your research um yeah so um yeah, the, the, I think the reason for that is because as we just talked about all the biases and what mm. we can, I think it's very important, especially with new disciplines, to make sure we really know what the dogs are capable of and aren't capable of. You know, so it's, it's easy to fool yourself mm. if you're not testing, whether in training or in research in this case. So I'm involved in the research with a research group um, on checking the dog's abilities with knotweed. So wow. we finished the first study, which we do need to write up. Uh, and that's the most difficult part for everyone <laughs> sitting down and writing but we're almost there um, and what we have done I cannot say too much about because it it's not published yet but we looked at doing an other ID test when they go in a lineup mm-hmm. and choose the right pot with mm-hmm. the right thing in the lineup yeah. so that's what we uh, we exposed Nika and Phoenix to that because Neto was a puppy when we're doing it and we just tested whether they would be able to, out of other plant matter, find knotweed and only find knotweed and how successful right. they would be. So when we were quite so when we were planning it, we looked at doing a double blind. So yeah. we had I didn't know where the knotweed was, mm. obviously. I didn't know how much knotweed we could have had. I uh, the dogs didn't know where knotweed was before it sniffed it. The person putting the pots out also didn't know. Right. And a person who knew where it was couldn't. We could not visually see her. Okay. So the dogs couldn't see her. Yeah. I so you're her. eliminating every possible source of information. Yeah. So that they have to go on scent alone. Yes, and try to keep everything as constant as possible. So I've got a question then, which is, where do you start when you're identifying a specific smell or odor mm. for the dogs? Do you start with a big lot of Japanese knotweed? Do you start with a tiny bit and build it up? Is that something it, they're, they're, you're happy to talk about? There'll be different schools mm. for that, so different people. So different people take different yes, approaches. Yes, and uh, yes, but generally it also will depend on what is their target, 
what is it actually they're going to find later? So as I use yeah. the bed bugs as an example, you you won't go really big. I mean, mm-hmm. you you can you can argue that you could have loads of bed bugs in the room, and that could be overwhelming for the dog. Mm-hmm. With knotweed, we would want to expose them to. We probably won't start too big or too small, but you want to expose them to both sides okay. because you want them to find quite small mm-hmm. pieces of knotweed because they will be finding tiny pieces on, um, for example, on the tires of a truck oh, that wow. might have been on a side. So that, and even tiniest part can uh, spread. So knotweed can spread on people's boots and yes, on yes, car yep, tires. Yep, yep. And that's how it can move around. Yes, it can. Yeah, it can. Yeah, or it can be moved by um, um, by animals. Yeah. So you need to have like washing wash up areas for the for your tracks or whatever on the side. And okay. there's specific requirements how much you can put of it in where, how to transport it. So there's yeah, there's a lot of regulation around. So that. when you've been on a site with Japanese knotweed, mm. are you all stepping through washing up bowls yeah, you need on to your clean, way out? Yeah, you need to clean the dogs, you need to clean yep. your sh- you need to change or clean your shoes so you have everything in, in so yeah, you have a process <laughs> for decontamination. I, I don't know why that surprises me. It's so logical. You don't want the Japanese knotweed no. crack team yes. to, be- <laughs> to be spreading knotweed, no. <laughs> no, but so that's why also human surveyors would have the same. So they would, you know, they would no, be got it. I just, it didn't equipment. occur to me. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you'll clean the equipment and the dog. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So when you've done that research, mm. what will that inform? It will be, that's the kind of proof of the concept, the first one. And then we have already hundreds and hundreds of ideas for the next ones okay. of kind of keep going and seeing. It's it's pretty much just testing the capability mm. of what's possible. And I'm guessing that part of this is driven by the fact that, you know, in contrast mm. with many conservation mm. dog workers, you know, you're in, this. this has a, this is high-stakes stuff, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes, yes. Japanese knotweed can buckle railway lines. Mm-hmm. It can get into cracks in mm-hmm. foundations. It can be fantastically damaging Yes, yes. in the area of property. Mm-hmm. So there must be quite a strong incentive. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated that you are routinely going out in this very targeted way to do a very targeted mm-hmm. thing. Um, but there must be a lot of will. Mm-hmm behind making everything more effective and better and, mm-hmm. and taking every bit of advantage that it's possible. Yes, of course, uh, absolutely. And, and I think it's, that's why I think it's so important to test everything mm. and, and, you know, make everything as robust as possible. Like yeah. we, we had a really, really interesting job recently that really shows, uh, it's a showcasing for, or whatever to say, it showcases their, how useful they can be on site because I went... Um, to a construction site where two very experienced surveyors and really good surveyors have been previously and could not find any evidence of knotweed except of the one that was seen there were some plants mm-hmm. uh, there was a, a strange history uh, site uh, the history there um, and in theory there should have been knotweed but they couldn't they were they did exploratory digs so they you know took yeah. I think six holes they made six holes could not find any knotweed so we brought in dogs and they said okay let's just we're doing our best Mm. let's see if the dogs can find something no one knows where the knotweed is you know no one can find it so maybe maybe there was something happened on Mm. the side but there was no history so we came in and uh we couldn't have couldn't search inside the holes because there was a chemical factory there previously so the soil wasn't tested yet at that point Uh, but uh, we've been there for about three hours and we found so much knotweed so much knotweed. Really? Yes. That uh, obviously they changed everything for the site. And wow. We found fresh knotweed. We found um, old knotweed. And we found knotweed in places where it was 
deemed as the contaminated area so that was you know fenced off saying right. okay this is where there is likely some we cannot we don't see it we don't have evidence we found that evidence but also we found not with in place they were supposed to be clean wow so you know it's it's, it's one of those where yeah. like it was just humans and those are as i said there was really good very good experienced surveyors that are doing a really good job but mm. they just were not able they're not able to sniff well, they it out they don't have a nose like no, a dog no no they yes. don't cat no. thank you <laughs> no worries it's been great <laughs> and fascinating as well <laughs> i think you're doing amazing things with your dogs i really do what a fantastic interview. I absolutely loved meeting Kat. Hope you did too. Very diverse, gorgeous and very hardworking dogs there. So until next time, I hope you have a wonderful couple of weeks. I am hoping to be bringing you yet another conservation detection dog next time. Uh, I've got a couple of lovely interviews lined up and I'm also very much hoping to uh, bring you some police dogs in various different disciplines within the police as well. So hopefully we have a lovely season ahead of us. Until next time. Dogs with Jobs, presented by Kate Fairweather and produced with John Wellsman. Made by volunteers in Petersfield, this is Shine Radio. Oh, it's like being in a little family. Um, I love the community spirit. I like coming out to events like this. This is my first event with Shine. I'm honing in on my editing skills right now. I've been allowed free reign of the controls this weekend. And yeah, just learning loads of new skills, being able to broadcast, interview. It's really good. Petersfield's Shine Radio. You make it shine. Call Petersfield 555 500 or email team at shineradio.uk.